Hey Lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish people. You see, Conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. I'm Austin Williams, and you're listening to Let Them Eat Grass. Today's episode is all about labels. I gave my brother a sneak peek, and his response was, I can honestly say that I've never once thought of any of that. Ryan, the honor is mine. Before we jump into it, I needed to tell you guys a story. It's long, but it perfectly encapsulates the danger of labels. So, get ready for a modern food history lesson. And wine lovers, if any of you out there are listening to me, you'd better pay attention. I might just ruin one of your favorite beverages. It's 2006. George Bush was president. Pluto lost planetary status in our solar system. Now the grade school acronym was Noodles instead of Nine Pizzas. So sad. The St. Louis Cardinals defeated the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Go Cards. I was 12 years old. I was a little chubby in sixth grade and playing the best basketball of my life. No, literally, my career peaked in about sixth grade. I hit puberty way early and grew like a weed. I was already five foot eight, which made me prime material for center. If you don't play much basketball, that's the guy who stands underneath the hoop, rebounds, and dunks the ball. My growth spurt slowed though, so by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was shorter than most people playing my position. That would be my last year playing. But also in 2006, in sunny California, a man named Rudy Kerniawan was quickly rising to prominence in the wine world. He was a newcomer, but came from a deep-pocketed family in Asia. You'd be surprised how forgivable a fault like being a newcomer is, especially when you're hanging out with people who love spending five digits on wine in a night. Rudy was young, had jet black hair, and this great smile. Friends called him charming, which is probably part of what allowed him to con wine investors out of more than $150 million. Incredibly enough, he always seemed to be desperate for money. Beyond being charming, he had this exquisite taste palette. He knew he could recreate the taste of any expensive vintage using a combination of inexpensive old and new wine. And he understood something peculiar and obvious about the wine world. Once you make a year's wine, you can't make any more of it. Duh, right? And the vintages that get saved and traded don't get drunk because, as I'm sure you're aware, you would lose all of its value. So there aren't many people who can honestly say what they're supposed to taste like. 
Enter Rudy's Con. He recreated some of the most expensive wines from cheap wines, but then passed it off as the real thing, except to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Spoiler alert, this story ends the way we want it to. If you want more details, watch the documentary Sour Grapes on Netflix, which details Rudy's rise and fall. Anyways, people start to become suspicious. Then the FBI gets involved, and eventually that leads to a house raid in sunny California in 2012. Inside, they found a fully functional counterfeiting system. There were corking tools, labels, empty bottles, and extensive tasting notes. He went to trial and was the first person ever convicted of wine fraud in the U.S., and is still serving his 10-year prison sentence. And since he overstayed his student visa since 2003, he'll be deported back to Indonesia upon his release. Now, how does this story prove the danger of labels? It proves the danger of labels because it proves how much we trust them. We believe the people putting those labels on our food are trustworthy and are communicating everything we need to know about our food. But that's just not the case. Let's just talk about wine right now. For instance, beyond the possibility that there may be as much as $3 billion of counterfeit wine circulating worldwide, and possibly as much as $550 million from Rudy, given inflation, did you know that winemakers add a whole lot more to their wine than just grapes? You wouldn't know that from the label. A grape has everything it needs to become wine. Wild yeast that floats in the air covers the surface of the grape, and when you break the skin, the yeast starts converting the sugar into alcohol. There's still some winemakers, definitely the minority, that still let fermentation happen the old-fashioned way. But when most winemakers want to accentuate certain characteristics in their vintages or aid some other process, they might add egg whites, yeast, diammonium phosphate, potato protein, sugar, or even fish bladder, and they aren't legally required to disclose their ingredients. The most scary study I found on wine contaminants was done by a French lab in Bordeaux, which tested French wines bottled from 2009 to 2010. The results? 90% had traces of pesticide. That's 9 in 10 bottles sold. That's crazy. The most common was an anti-rot fungicide applied late in the growing season. Even though I'd love to know if winemakers use diammonium phosphate or fish bladder in my wine, the one warning I wish were on the bottle would be, warning, may contain pesticides. Yikes. I hope I didn't turn you off on wine, but this story was just too perfect. There are two takeaways here. Sometimes, labels are just patently untrue. That's more often the exception to the rule, but it still stands. More often, labels obscure some part of the production process. They leave things out that you would want to know. If you hang around to the end, I'll tell you the three options you have when trying to figure out a label. And I should also say that I'm not against the idea of a label. Labels can be nice shorthand when you're shopping with kids on a timetable. But blind trust in labels is not healthy, and it's necessary to do some basic research on what labels mean before you entrust your family's health to them. Listen closely. The danger of labels is that they only guarantee a certain set of criteria have been met before that food goes in your mouth. It does not, not mean that the food is good for you. And I say the word guarantee pretty lightly, because if the government's criterion guarantee was actually ironclad, we wouldn't have issues like food recalls. But we do. 
So how did we get here? And when did the need arise for labels on our food? Let's use meat as the example. There was actually a time and place in American history when the source of meat wasn't all that unfamiliar to us. You knew the farmer who raised the cow, went to church with the butcher, and owned a cellar where you cured your own meat. In this system, labels aren't necessary. Massive disease outbreaks via contaminated food didn't happen because the supply system was neither long nor opaque. But there was one fateful marriage which changed all this. A refrigerator and a railway car tied the knot in 1867, enabling year-round nationwide delivery of processed meat. And since capitalism always favors scales of production, more and more meatpacking was outsourced from local communities to urban places like Chicago. Fast forward 40 years, in the early 1900s. These slaughterhouses were disgusting places. After the writer Upton Sinclair spent seven weeks inside Chicago's meatpacking district, he set his fictional 1906 novel The Jungle in one of its slaughterhouses. Workers severed fingers, defecated in primitive toilets right next to the raw meat, coughed tuberculosis-laden blood right onto the carcasses, and routinely died on the line after getting sucked inside the machines. Rotten meat got doused with industrial-strength chemicals like borax, was finely ground, and quaintly relabeled as potted chicken. The worst part about all this? It was undoubtedly true. President Roosevelt sent a team of men to investigate Sinclair's wild claims, and they sent back word that everything present in his novel was basically the gospel truth. The investigators saw the rats, blood, pickled hands, standing urine, and diseased animals. They confirmed the lies, brutal wages, and inhuman working conditions that the largely immigrant workforce was subjected to every day. Except for one tiny detail. The one thing they couldn't verify was workers falling into vats of steaming lard, becoming lard themselves within a few days. Must have been artistic license. After I read this book in high school, I wondered how anyone could have survived. People reading it 100 years ago must have thought the same thing, because the consumer outrage was explosive. Historians estimate that national meat sales dropped up to 50% due to the book's publication alone. Where did the sales go? To local butchers and local food, of course. This created a problem for big meatpacking companies. They were losing money fast. They wanted their hands and knees to President Roosevelt begging for an end to the bloodletting. They were so desperate, they actually pursued regulation. Instead of sending them on a journey of soul-searching, he consented. Now, every carcass had to have a government inspector give it the stamp of approval before it got passed on to the consumer. It allowed the big boys to stay in business and the government to satisfy consumer outcry. Sounds good, right? Like this is actually a story about the time the government cared about its citizens and acted promptly to safeguard our health. Not exactly. The government just assumed more control. Where consumer outcry could have led to consumer education and demanded better production practices, the government instead stepped in to implement further regulation and calm the waters. They are the problem and the solution in one tidy package, and we accept them as heroes with open arms. Any look at modern feedlots today, and it's clear that big meatpacking companies don't care any more about our health than they did in 1906. Increasing government regulation only leads to more regulation, not a societal change of heart. 
Imagine if today 50% of meat sales disappeared from big companies. Imagine how different the average American rancher would run their operation if 50% of their customers demanded answers as to how they were raising their meat. Seriously, imagine you're a rancher. Now imagine one in two of your customers' jaws dropping when they saw your dirty, disgusting feedlots as you tried to convince them this environment had no impact on the quality of meat they were buying. The ranching landscape might very well change overnight. When the government doesn't certify meat, history shows that the American consumer takes it upon themselves to certify it. Now, history lesson over, I'm going to come back to reality. I'm a product of a label-based society. I grew up with them, and you probably did too. I know my wife did. And so while I don't like the principle of labels, they promote distance from the source and opaqueness. I use them all the time. We can't all make everything for ourselves. That's just not realistic. My wife and I are actually kind of crazy about labels. We're those people who walk up and down the aisle looking for the green USDA organic label and non-GMO label on every vegetable and non-meat item we buy. Even when the clueless teenage grocery store stalker puts the organic peanut butter high and away on the top shelf all the way to the right, you better believe we'll snag it. We're not as radical as I'd like to be, and so we still don't make everything we eat at home. You see, we still go grocery shopping. But progress doesn't happen overnight. Let's talk about some misleading labels you might come across in the grocery store and what they actually mean. The USDA Organic Seal, the big daddy of all health food labels, is backed by the United States Department of Agriculture. You've seen it before. It's a green circle that says USDA Organic. It's simple and intuitive. It means that, in a best-case scenario, 95% or more certified organic ingredients and no GMOs for three years prior, either on the land itself or eaten by the animal. Some chemicals can still be used on fields and vaccines used on animals. It has no animal welfare requirements, so feedlot beef and CAFO chicken can still be certified organic. It does not mean animals live on pasture, and they can actually still live in cages as long as they're fed non-GMO grain. Certified Angus beef is something we find in the meat department at our grocery stores. It's yellow, with a black outline of a cow in the foreground. The certification almost exclusively comes down to the presentation of the meat itself, listing 10 science-based criteria for marbling, size, and uniformity. Only one criteria has to do with animal production, and that concerns the fact that only cattle younger than 30 months are allowed to be harvested. If you're counting calories, watch out for the fat-free and sugar-free labels. Usually companies will add sugar to items without fat, and add fat to items without sugar to balance them. Light products, like yogurt or olive oil, don't mean a reduction in calories. Often, producers are simply referring to the flavor. Although I've touched on this in the last episode, I don't feel like this episode would be complete without hammering our friend, All Natural. Once again, I need to remind you that All Natural has zero legal ramifications. None. Anything I feel like is natural becomes natural. I can market that word any way I want. If you see it in the grocery store, just ignore it. It doesn't mean anything. 
Most labels fall short of a true guide for healthy eating because they just communicate what isn't in the food, how the food isn't raised. This is equivalent to you asking me how to get to Texas and I tell you, don't take Highway 70 through Illinois. You don't care what not to do. You want to know what to do. Even the USDA organic label succumbs to this. There are some really cool labels certified by private companies that are vying to be that practical alternative to the USDA. They are actually affirming a certain way of producing the food, and they don't even use your tax dollars. What a concept. You've probably seen the butterfly perched on a green grass shoot recently on something you've bought. That's the most popular, non-GMO project verified. The criteria is that there can't be more than 0.9% GMOs in your food. There's the Food Alliance Certified, which has an environmental stewardship aspect. And there's Certified Naturally Grown, which has living conditions criteria for animals and this really cool farmer-to-farmer review element. I recently got to interview Carrie Balcom. She's the Executive Director of the American Grass-Fed Association, or AGA for short. Here's our interview. All right, so I, I don't. I told you a little bit about myself, but uh, my name is Austin Williams, and uh, I'm a regenerative agriculturalist in Mid Missouri, and we're working on about 900 acres or so, and we're doing pasture raised lamb, beef. Uh, we're about to do some pork. We do pasture raised chicken. We do, um, gosh, you know, pasture raised eggs, uh, kind of the whole nine yards. We just got some dairy cows in, and mm-hmm. I'm doing this episode on labels, right? So. And okay. that's something that your organization, uh, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but certifies. Um, so I'm just, I'm really curious. I, I'm going to get there eventually, but I, re- I want to know about you first. So I'm just curious, what's your background and like, why are you part of the American Grass Head Association? Well, I was raised on a cattle ranch in South Florida. And um, when I transitioned uh, from one job to another job, career change. Um, I got very involved in the culinary world. I, I taught culinary at a college here in Denver. Um, I was raised on a, on a working cattle ranch in South Florida. Um, I was very involved in, in the, the uh, food movement. And so when when slow slow started, I mean, when um, AGA started in Denver in March of '03, I was invited to the first meeting, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Okay. So that, yeah. so that's, that's been 16 years now. Well, Oh three to Oh nine. Yeah. Somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a really long time. So what would you say, like, so going from the culinary movement, like did your family do a grass fed operation in South Florida, which led no, you grass, to a- No grass fed wasn't a thing when, when I was, we were doing it. It was just, it was cow calf. It still is cow calf because it's the mm-hmm. only market. It's the only market they have. Mm-hmm. So what, what led you from culinary into the American grass-fed association? Timing. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in the right, I was in the right place at the right time. It, it spoke to me after watching what was happening with our food supply after being in the culinary mm-hmm. world for years. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden these people are trying to redefine, um, a way of production and mm-hmm. it, it, it was just, it was just important to me to be part of it. That's, that's really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. What what would you say has been like your proudest shining moment over the course of the last 16 years with the AGA? 
Oh gosh, getting our label and starting the consumer education and the consumer revolt against uh, industrial uh, food. Yeah, whether that be whether that be cattle or or pork or anything, we're we have pork standards, dairy. Of course, dairy is probably the worst, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as far as animal welfare oh, yeah. and feeding. Horrible. So I think getting our seal into the marketplace, we've had, we've been certifying since 07 and traction. We do now have two major brands that have our seal on their, their packaging. And we have a lot of minor, we have a lot of um, not so major brands who are using it and requiring our seal uh, to use the term grass fed. Wow. And what are those two brands? Uh, Horizon Dairy Milk okay. and, Applega- and Applegate Pork. Wow. Very, yeah. very impressive. Yeah. Um, so we also, we also have Kelowna, which is not a major brand, but it's a mm-hmm. brand in Iowa. And the nice thing about the dairy is that we're keeping these dairies going. We're giving them another market mm-hmm. uh, with the grass milk. Um, we're bringing on dairies all the time. And some of these dairies only milk maybe 20 or 30 cows. So they're not, mm-hmm. they're not mega dairies. Oh yeah. You know, we only have 10, so we, we get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm curious uh, to hear what's what's your response like from the conventional producer side. You usually hear a lot of like, oh, like there is no such thing as value added. Like there's not actually a benefit to doing this to the product. Like, what's your response to people who are really frustrated that you know you're you're trying to make, carve out a niche in the market for yourself? Well, I, I don't understand the question first of all because everything has value. And, um, you know, to do it traditionally, which is the way we do it, not conventionally, um, definitely has value. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a pretty broad, broad question, but for people who want to, for people who want to poo poo it, they don't understand it or they're, you know, it's turning the herd uh-huh. <laughs> to use a term. So yeah, that's why. And, you know, you know, there, there are, there are naysayers anywhere, but we're just, mm-hmm. we're just going to, we're just going to keep forging ahead and making sure that farmers have, have a way to, to differentiate their product in the marketplace. Um, mm-hmm. and we're not denigrating any other's product, but we're saying that this is grass fed and this is what it does and this is what it, how it works. And mm-hmm. these are the benefits and we hope that the informed consumer will, will buy it. All right. Which they are. I, I totally agree. We, our farm is evidence of that as well. So yeah. what does your label guarantee? Okay. It's four basic tenants, no confinement feeding, access to pasture 24 uh, seven. There is, as far as if you're a farmer, then you know that there are certain times that you have to move your animals and hold them up to, to work them or to uh, sort them and that kind of thing. But there's, there's no confinement feeding. There's no antibiotics, there's no added hormone, and good animal husbandry. So that's what the label, that's basically what the label says. Um, there are some standards out there that allow, uh, you know, 120 days on pasture to call it grass-fed. And that's 200, that's 240 days in confinement. Yeah. So That's incredible. And yeah, that's, could you possibly... Oh, go ahead. That's, that's, you got four months that they can be out on pasture and eight months they can be in, 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 in confinement. So we, we don't allow that. I'm, I'm very glad you don't. Um, I'm curious, could you possibly define, like when you say good animal husbandry for our listeners, um, many of whom may not be aware of what that term means. Could you just like unpack that a little bit? 
Well, good animal husbandry is allowing the animal to express its natural behaviors. The natural behavior for a, for, sorry, for a, for a ruminant animal is to be out on pasture, to be moving, to be grazing, to be eating cellulose or plants. And they can turn that, that cellulose into energy, which we can't do. And by having a multi-chambered stomach, then they keep, you know, people talk about chewing your cud. Well, that's what animals do. They, they eat it. They put it in the one chamber of their stomach. Then they, they do it again. And then they put it in another chamber of their stomach. So that's natural. That's natural for a ruminant. What makes it not, not and that's, that's grasses, legumes, brassicas, um, those kind of things. What makes it not natural is a high, high uh, carbohydrate diet. With you know, the, with the, the uh, cereal grains, corn, soy, those kind of things, they're they're not made to digest that. So they're they're going wait wait. <laughs> it's like sitting on the couch and eating chocolate all day. You know, it's nice every now and again, but <laughs> you don't want to do it as an yep. as a diet type. No, thing. so not at all. That's that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much what we need. And you know, s- sticking animals in feed yards and feeding them. Um, on a schedule too, because you know you animals eat um, when they're supposed to eat. They eat early in the morning, and then they they graze in the morning, and then they rest during the day, and then they graze at night um, because it does two things: it it gives off uh, beneficial pheromones to keep predators mm-hmm. at bay, and they herd around, and then they give off all of these wonderful pheromones, which keeps predators at bay. And if you if you put them in a feed yard and give them a ration whenever you decide to give them a ration, then they're going, wait a minute, I wasn't ready to eat. My, 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 mm-hmm. my, my psyche's not, my, my body's not telling me this is the time to eat. And then at night, then at night they have no way to, to huddle or, or to herd. And so they're, they're exposed and they're, they're vulnerable. So. Mm, I see. Yeah. Um, something else I saw on, uh, on your website that I'm really curious about and I'm, no, I'm sure that my listeners will be curious about too, uh, was that there was a provision that you needed to have. It's essentially like what in the art world is called provenance. Um, you had to have like a genetic history of like the cows or the animals that you had. And there was like an emphasis on family farms and having animals like born and raised in the U S it's only it's U S only it's uh, we don't, we, yeah. we don't certify anything outside the United States. The animals have to be born and raised in the United States. Um, country of origin labeling was, was kicked out uh, several years ago. So product brought into this country is grown wherever they grow it. And if it's repackaged, they can call it country of origin, but American grass fed standard means you're supporting American family farms and farmers. Mm-hmm. So, I think you, you touched on it a little bit right there, but what I'm, what I'm hearing from you, and I'm sure this is something that would surprise our listeners is that like meat that is imported. Can you talk a little bit about how like meat that's imported doesn't have to like meet the same standards as meat born and raised in the U S we don't know what standards they are. They may say that we don't know, um, you know, because it's, it's coming in from all over. Um, I'm not really sure. I think it was Colorado state, but don't quote me on that one. I think they did a study and they had the DNA of over a thousand animals in one burger. So you don't, you don't, you don't really know where those animals have been raised, how they've been raised, where they've come from. Um, so, you know, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, lastly, uh, what makes your label different from other labels? It's our label. (laughs) 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 Well, first of all, we were the first, uh, Mm -hmm. we are, we're, we are 
we're a producer run organization where it's it, it, the producers got together and said, this is what we need to make, make it function. So that's, that's one thing. Um, we are, uh, we're written by producers for producers and benefit producers. So uh, in, we have scientists and nutritionists and annual animal behaviorists that we, we talk to and we work with, but the bottom line is that the, the producers write our standards and our board of, our board of directors is, is, um, is, the majority of them are producers that are out on their farm every day. You know, that's, so. that's really, really cool. How do, how do you yeah. make that work? Like, I mean, do you just have like, I don't know, like video meetings, like how do you make, like, it's hard to make even two farmers schedules coincide. Like how do you, how do you make that work? Well, we're using technology to the best advantage we can with, with uh, conference calls and zoom meetings and such things like that. The, uh, the farmers and ranchers that are part of our board are committed. So our face-to-face -face meetings are a couple of times a year. Our standards committee meets regularly via phone, via Zoom, via um, screen share. So we make it work. All right. And in this day and time with the internet, we, we're going to make it work. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. Well, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to say about your organization that I haven't touched on or that I haven't come close to? Uh, because those are, those are really the main questions that I wanted to ask you. Well, the thing is, is that we have, we have the ruminant standards, which is beef, bison, lamb, and goat. And then we started with dairy and now we have pork standards. But the thing to do if you're a consumer is don't take, when you go to the grocery store don't take the word of somebody behind the meat counter because they're as confused sometimes as we are or the consumer is. Delve down, look for our logo. Of course, I'm, I'm going to toot my own horn here and the, the, the farmers that I work with and I have a lot of admiration for. Look for our logo. Um, they go through inspections every 15 months and the reason we do it every 15 months instead of once a year is that way we see the farm at different times of the year and it just makes sense for us. On our farm, we don't use labels. Our customers trust us because we're transparent with them. We don't hide our animals from them behind barbed wire with no trespassing signs. We post photo updates to our websites and social media. We invite our customers out for farm tours. We've earned that trust. And honestly, that trust is better than any label could ever provide. Failing to spend time on inspecting our own food supply chain abdicates our responsibility to ensure that our own food is safe. When we trust the government for that, we let distant guys in fancy suits decide what's good and not good for us. Just like Rudy managed to swindle his seemingly educated wine investors out of untold millions, we can be tricked. Assuming a label guarantees food is good for us is just wishful thinking. Next time you're considering whether or not to buy something based on the label, ask yourself, does this mean what I think it does? Look it up. Here are those three options I said you would have. Option number one, look for non-governmental labels in the grocery store that indicate a high quality of food. Option number two, research or call the producer and ask what their practices are. Go somewhere else if their standards don't match yours or if they're evasive. Option number three, buy locally tour a farm and get to know a farmer. Seriously, you won't need labels if you've seen with your own eyes how your food is being raised. 
That's all I have for you this week. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about labels, Rudy Kerniawan, and my short but very esteemed basketball career. Hey, Lunatics. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, follow me on Twitter at Missouri Austin or shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you live in the Missouri area and want to take the next step in radically protecting the health of you and your family, you can buy some of our pasture-raised food at my friend David's website, fedfromthefarm.com. That's F-E-D, fedfromthefarm.com. And use the offer code PDCST, like podcast without the vowels, for $10 off your next order. I am shamelessly promoting this, but since I manage this farm and personally take care of the animals, this is the only operation I can wholeheartedly endorse. We have buying clubs in Kansas City, Columbia, Jeff City, Washington, St. Charles, Chesterfield, and St. Louis that we drive to either once a week or once every two weeks. Don't be strangers. I want to hear from you. If you order food from fedfromthefarm.com, put a note in the comment section that you heard about us through this podcast. I'm attempting something revolutionary here. Due to my city delivery schedule, I would consistently get to meet my subscribers. I would love to swap stories, share laughs, and hear the story of what convinced you to become a lunatic. If I see you a few times, I'll probably even invite you to our farm. We do those tours free of charge. If you really enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous with the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Right now, I've managed to keep my entire budget for starting under 100 bucks. The music, cover art, and sound design have all been done by friends or relatives out of the goodness of their hearts. With your subscriptions and reviews, I can turn this podcast from a bi-weekly to a weekly podcast if I can start generating an income stream. But I'll need sponsors for that. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. Fact-checking was done by the daring David Boatwright. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Until next time, how's Saudi?